We're going to finish up uh, the last piece of a quick three-part series in Philippians, looking at joy and rejoicing. And I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed uh, being reminded or even learning some things that maybe I've forgotten or did not know about joy and rejoicing. If you're uh, following along in your Bibles, which I hope you are, uh, we use the ESV version, so on your devices or on your paper Bibles, I like to turn pages. I like to hear pages turn when uh, we're together. That's uh, where we'll be this morning, and we'll be in chapter four. And we started out in chapter one learning that Paul's circumstances were not good. Paul writes to the Philippians church saying that he's in prison. He's probably expecting execution at any time in his life because of his proclamation of the gospel. And so he writes to this church and um, wants to make sure he encourages them and reminds them about the cross and the gospel and joy and rejoicing. He says that while he's in prison, there are people that are causing him great pain and difficulty, trying to make him look bad. And he says, but it doesn't really matter. He'll rejoice. We looked last week at chapter 3, where Paul's writing to warn uh, this group of Christians that he's writing to that there will be uh, attacks, people will come against the gospel trying to distort it or add to it. And so beware, be careful, don't let that happen. That there's nothing, absolutely nothing that could be added to the gospel. And it's Christ, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection that will provide sure and certain salvation. I was thinking this week that uh, a, a way to think of that would be, uh, you know, multiple years ago, we were fortunate enough to pay off our house. And so after paying off our house, we, you know, get the deed showing that we own the house. And how crazy would it be uh, if you heard that every month I was still trying to pay off my house? You, you would say, are you nuts? Don't, don't send money. You, you own the house. Why would you continue to try and pay for your house? Well, in a, in a sense, if we add to the gospel or distort or get distracted from the gospel alone, it's like you're constantly trying to do something for something that has already been accomplished by Christ. Make sense? And so Paul wants to make sure that his readers know that don't get distracted from the truth of the gospel this week. <clears throat> this week, chapter four, we're going to discover um, Paul reminding them this again, but also saying, because you are saved, because you are a professing Christian, you should be acting like this. And it made me wonder how many of us have thought of our faith, our salvation, more as a one-time event. Maybe you wrote in the beginning of your Bible, and that's been the end of it for you. When Paul's saying, wait, you need to live in joy because of what Christ has done, but you need to live out your joy because of what Christ has done. And your life should model a thankfulness 
a thankfulness. And so as the people of the redemptive community of God, meaning churches, fellow Christians, our lives should be filled with actions and attitudes that stand in stark contrast, excuse me, uh, to our world. Our actions, our attitudes should stand in stark contrast to the world because we're joyful. Remember, at the beginning, we um, unpacked what joy is. Joy is a, um, a settled heart, a wellness of the soul. It, it comes from being sure and certain of the work that Christ did that has now reunited us with God, that we are forgiven people. So it's a wellness of the soul. Rejoicing is, is the fruit of joy. It is the uh, observable fruit that we see in people's lives that show that they're glad, that they delight in life, that they are thriving in life despite their circumstances. It's like they have this eternal understanding about the world they live in and the certainty and the security that comes from knowing Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to face trials and difficulties. We live in this world and we see those daily, right? We have sinful natures and we make mistakes and we sin and we sin against uh, God, we sin against others and, and we struggle to find peace and life outside of God. I'm not talking about that. That happens. But we must not be tempted to drift from the gospel, thus losing the certainty of joy and rejoicing. I'd also said earlier that joy really is a gift from God because it comes through Christ and it comes through the cross. And so God offers joy to those who are followers of him and and give them a peace that comes from knowing and trusting God and ability to thrive in life in the midst of chaos. He also gives us this gift of joy knowing that uh, we can have a security in the midst of uncertainty in life. Joy also says that there's a calmness we have in the midst of fear. And joy also says we always have a certain hope in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. Those seem strange to put together, right? Well, let's dig in this morning and and finish up this last part. We're going to be chapter 4, and I'm going to look at just the first uh, nine verses this morning. Let's read together. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat... Eudea, and I entreat Sinki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Multiple times, just in those few short verses, <clears throat> Paul writes to remind them about the gospel. So he uses the phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus, or in the gospel, that appears over and over. See, life in the gospel is something that, again, is not a one-time thing that you receive. It's something you have to be reminded of so that you live in, so that you live out. Otherwise, we drift back into living life our way is trying to find happiness, which is circumstantial, temporary, only to be lacking and finding out that there's got to be more than what I'm hunting for. So when he uses the phrase uh, in the Lord, he means that our identity, the Philippians' identity has been changed through Christ. And we're now sons and daughters because of Christ and the cross. And, and being part of this redemptive community will now mean that our lives should model and imitate Christ. There's an easy thing, right? In other words, when the world looks at you, they should see us pursuing passionately the life, the passions, the priorities, and the character of Christ. That's what Paul's reminding his readers about. He's saying, like, don't forget this gospel that saves you now to live it out so the world sees it in you. Yes, God expects his people to display the joy that he has given to them as a gift. He expects us to model that. We're to stand out, be obviously different in how we relate to one another, how we face adversity, what we trust, and most importantly, who we trust. Christians are to model the message of the gospel to our world. Let me just give you a few. When the world looks at us, they should see us giving of ourselves out of a care for others, modeling the heart of God as he cared for us. The world should see us loving because of the inherent worth people have as image bearers of God. They should see the gospel in us by forgiving others because we realize the amount of forgiveness that God has forgiven us with. The world should see us investing to encourage one another through disciple-making. 
the world should see us trusting, living out this true faith, the settledness of our soul that nothing in God's control is ever out of control, so I will trust completely in God. The world should see us giving grace to one another because of the grace God has given to us. And the world should see our redeemed lives in such a way that we look so differently that while we're on earth, we live solely for Christ, but have an eye on heaven, realizing that is our ultimate goal. So Paul writes and says, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And when you do, there's going to be joy that you're standing in. You're going to rejoice, even though you face difficulties of all kinds. So I want to highlight just three things this morning as we close this out. Three things that will help sustain our joy. Three things that will help sustain our joy that Paul writes to the Philippians about. First is found in verses 1, 4, and 5. And I labeled this that sustaining our joy will come from a composure that comes from the cross. Sustaining joy will come from a composure that comes from the cross. Living in joy brings a contentment. We discovered that. There's a, a wellness internally that should be observable. That, that contentment should bring a, a composure in how we live. Now don't get me wrong, doesn't mean that you won't have fears, you won't have challenges, doesn't mean that we're gonna be exempt from difficulties. Paul sure wasn't, was he? But he had this composure in how he lived life. Composure means to be calm and in control when everything else around you is out of control. And you can have that because of the victory of the cross. So we have a composure that comes from a cross. Verse 1, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. That carries the thought from chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where Paul reminds them that they're citizens of heaven. And the gospel is a promise of eternity with God. So don't lose heart. Live in joy live in composure. Don't hold on so tightly to this world, Paul says. Don't be caught seeking something other than the joy that's a gift. Because the cross has overcome sin. The cross has overcome evil. The cross has conquered death. Why should we fear? Verse 4 Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He uses that word rejoice twice. Like to say, don't forget. Don't forget this. Thrive, be well, be glad, delight in life. Don't forget it. I'm going to tell you twice. To be glad in Jesus, to be well in Jesus, to be content in Jesus, to thrive in life because of Jesus, remembering the salvation that Jesus gave us. 
It made me think of Matthew chapter 28, which we think of the Great Commission, but at the very end of verse 20, of chapter 28, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So you're not alone, you're not facing life alone. And then verse five, he writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this speaks about the composure we are to have as we go through life. How you relate and treat other people and how you face life situations. It's an attitude and a posture of your heart that is seeking to be like Jesus. Reasonableness shows up when you look to the interests of others rather than demanding your own way. It requires us to be kind and courteous, gentle. That's one of the definitions of the word reasonable, gentle. Paul's been spending a big portion of this letter talking about reasonableness, gentleness, and what it looks like to have this composure in life. Matter of fact, a big chunk of this, which we didn't get a lot of time to look into, has a lot to do with how you relate to other people. Verse 1-9, Paul said, he wanted their love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, loving actions, and actions that are affectionate towards others. Verse 27, chapter one, he says, let your life be lived in a way worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side in unity. Let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known in the way you interact because of Christ. Verse uh, one and two of chapter two. He says, if you are in Christ, have the same mind, same love, being in one accord and of the same mind, devoted to Christ. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, chapter two, let each one of you not only look to his own interests, but the interests of others. Verse 14 of chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you might be lights in the world. Chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, join me and imitate me on pressing on, straining to know Christ, to model Christ to each other in the world. Chapter four, verse two, agree in the Lord. Chapter four, verse five, let your reasonableness be known to the world. You see the pattern? He's laying out here that our actions, our attitude should be starkly different than that of the world. These are just some of the verses. You know, God is serious about us reflecting the redemption he has given us. First, to each other in the church, Second, to those outside of the church. We're, we're to seek to be transformed into the image of Christ and the world would then see and witness this transforming power of Jesus. Well, the challenge obviously is our sinful natures. I'm trying to justify our sinful natures when they don't match those of Jesus. The challenge, battling, against the things we think are important, 
forgetting the testimony of our actions and attitudes to the world. Think, think about the current controversies, if you will, of our day. Just a few. Things associated with the COVID virus. And, and how are you and others responding to that? How's that look in your life? Are we reasonable? Are we rebellious? Are you more concerned about your rights than your witness in the world? I fear the church is missing some great opportunities to model a reasonableness to our world. Instead, we tend to be a little more contrarian and critical and combative, don't we? When we're more concerned about our rights than our witness, it's probable that people know more about what you're against than the Jesus you say you belong to. Are you reasonable? Are you reasonable as people observe you in life? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who through he was in the form of God did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross that was Jesus's model to us Philippians chapter 2, if you're looking for the reference, 5 through 8. Jesus modeling reasonableness. Living in composure means you first and last are most concerned with how you represent Christ in your life. We're aware and most concerned with how we model and live out the image of Christ in our life. Inside and outside the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians 5 and says, we're ambassadors for Christ, as if he's making his appeal to the world through us. So how are you doing in your composure? Is your joy at a level that the world sees you have a composure that reflects the cross? The cross is where Jesus settled everything. So be confidently, confidently composed in your life. Second, it's found in verses two and three. Sustaining your joy will come by a commitment to loving unity in peaceful relationships and purposes. That's a mouthful. I'll say it again if you're taking notes. Sustaining joy will come from a commitment to loving unity in peaceful relationships and purposes. Verses 2 and 3, Paul writes about two ladies that are having a dispute, a, a difficulty in the church. You see, the, the cross restored man's broken relationship with God. And the cross is also now to lead us in how we relate to others in the same way God related to us through the cross. Our relationships should be full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. 
just like the way God acted and responded to us on the cross. And so Paul writes in verses 2 and 3, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Sinki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, not sure exactly who Paul is writing about. Is that the church or a specific person? We don't know for sure, but he says, um, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Christ, or with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These are Christians who have labored side by side for the gospel together. You get it? This, this isn't people outside the church. Paul's writing to the church. How would you like to be in the meeting where that's, this letter gets read? Hey, and treat Jeff to, whoa, wait a minute. You know, think about that. The letter's getting read among the group of believers and two people are called out. Like, you're followers of Christ. You're living for Jesus. You've served alongside of me and what you're battling about and fighting about is not good for the body of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. This is serious business. He says, so agree in the Lord. Uh, the wording here means to have an intent that comes from both affection and intellect. He's saying there should be an affection for each other. There should be an affection for Christ. There should be an affection for the gospel, which affects how you react. He goes on and says, I entreat you, which means to urge, to appeal, to exhort, to encourage them to walk alongside to make sure this gets taken care of and handled. We don't know what the agreement or disagreement was. It's not listed. I don't know if it's theological. I don't know if it's a personal preference. I don't know what it was, because it doesn't say. But the issue is, Paul's concerned for the modeling in the church and outside the church of how they were gonna deal with this. Sadly, this passage is pretty relevant to what's happening today. No, no matter if it's racial tensions of our day, the COVID-19 tensions of our day, the political tensions of our day, yeah, watch TV and the ads are starting. No matter what those are, the church is to be a model of what it looks like to work through things in a Christ-like manner. We must remember the cross, how Jesus loves and restores and brings together people who can have different opinions. Now, don't get me wrong. It's possible to have different opinions on something. It's not possible to divide and be at odds with one another against the gospel. It's crazy. I mean, when, when the church looks more like the world and the way we work through differences, we are damaging the testimony of Christ. Read social media. We look pretty angry as the body of church, of the body of Christ these days. We look pretty combative. We look pretty divided, right? Where's the concern for the gospel and how we engage when we differ and we disagree? Where's the concern for the gospel? 
I just retired as district superintendent from our denomination, but, but still have some interactions with pastors. You, you know, people are leaving churches because they don't like a decision the church made regarding wearing masks. I mean, it's crazy. Sorry, I can say this, Ronnie, you'll have to clean this up next week. <laughs> but, but it's crazy to think that, that one day you've got to stand before Christ and, and, and answer this question, well, you really broke your relationship with brothers and sisters because they asked you to wear a mask? That's, that's really what caused you to walk away from brothers and sisters? I, I mean, think about that for a moment. I, I mean, I understand. You can have differing opinions. Fine. Fine. But the gospel has to be more important than your opinions on whether to wear a mask. Amen? Paul says that they need to agree in the Lord. In other words, because of the Lord and by the Lord, get back to making sure that you're more concerned about the gospel than your rights. The gospel will mean, if you're a follower of Christ, that we're pursuing loving unity in our relationships. We refuse to let disagreements fester. We refuse to let unforgiveness and reconciliation to go unresolved. And again, the redeemed community of God is where this must happen so that the world sees that Christ lives in us. Is it possible, if we're not careful, again, that people see more of what we're against than the Jesus who we claim to be for? So let us come alongside each other when we disagree. Let us come alongside and encourage and pray. Correct. Yes, correct. Work it out. Look different. Be vibrant, be the place where we look so different from the world, not because we compromise, but because we come together in Christ to figure it out. Joy should be obvious in our living with a commitment to loving unity and peaceful relationships and purposes. Third and finally, Sustaining joy will come from a confidence that overcomes fears. A confidence that overcomes fears. We see this in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The cross refocuses our joy, our steadfastness. We're never without hope. We're never without hope. So we can have joy because we have a confidence that overcomes fears. Take a look at these verses and you're going to learn how to live in more fullness of joy that overcomes fears. And it comes through prayer. In other words, making God the first place we go when we're a little shaken, we're a little rattled, we're really concerned. Paul says, don't be anxious over anything. What does that mean? 
It means don't be anxious over anything. That, that's what it means, nothing. I thought you'd laugh more at that. <laughs> yeah, it means uh, in, in all of life, in all the situations you face at all times, nothing means just that, nothing. Don't be anxious and worry about those things. Don't be a worrier. This means we're not to worry and be consumed by the what-ifs of life. Not to be burdened with care and concern. Why? Because when you do, you're actually saying, this is too big for God to handle. I better worry about this because I'm not sure I can trust God with the outcome and the situation. This is too big for God to handle. Let's be honest, that's what's going on in our hearts, right? We worry about money, jobs, relationships, health, what might happen, what might not happen. And worry then becomes debilitating. It becomes consuming. It affects us physically, emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. Because it takes your, your mind and your heart off of God. I face worry. You face worry. But when worry comes in, where do we go? Well, Paul's writing very clearly. Don't be worrying about something. Take it to God and begin to pray. Worry deceives you into thinking God might not have your best interest in mind. I want this or I want that outcome, but, but what if God doesn't bring this outcome or that outcome? What if that happens? Well, we need to, in prayer, really stop this deception of worry. Be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Because when you go to God in prayer, you're going to remember the God who saved you and has redeemed you and restored you and is in control of everything. And if God's really in control of everything, what am I worried about? It's a trust thing. Crosses where God displayed that he is in full reign of everything. So take your concerns to God. So it says in everything by prayer, Make prayer your first action so that you live in joy. You won't get distracted and start seeking or trusting other things. Uses the word supplication here. This is to be specific in your request. Come before God. And you know what? You're not taking God by surprise when you say, I'm afraid or I'm worried about this. He already knows it. Okay? You're not taking him by surprise. Be specific. The idea of pouring out your heart in, in a deep request to God. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And it says with thanksgiving, meaning having an expression of thankfulness and gratitude to God for his mercy, his love, and his care. And when you do that, your joy begins to settle your heart. It'll, it'll wipe away the worry. Try it. You know, the temptation to worry is great. We all face it. And so Paul says, look, remember joy. Remember the gospel. When, when you get a little worried, when things are happening, go to God. Pray about it. 
And then he also says in verses 8 and 9 some other things to tag on here. It says one way to proactively not get to a point of worrying is to think about the right kinds of things. He says when you are going through life, make sure you're thinking about the right kinds of things. Look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's saying, as you go through life, make sure your mind is fixed on the things of God. By the way, those things are the things of God. Okay? He's saying, fix yourself on those. Don't, don't let your mind get distracted on other things. You get stinking thinking when that happens. Keep your mind, develop a pattern of thinking, dwelling on, pursuing the things of God. Dwelling on the things of God will keep you from having other things distract you and rob you of joy. Joy. Interesting, 16 times joy or rejoice is mentioned in Philippians. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible because I need reminded of what joy is and how to rejoice. So what do we take away from this quick study? My hope is you take away a reminder that there's absolutely nothing that could ever be added to the gospel than what God did through Christ on the cross. And because of that, All those who believe in Christ are given the gift of joy. It is well with your soul. And when it is well with your soul, you can rejoice. You can thrive in life. You can be glad. You can delight even in the worst circumstances as Paul was in awaiting possible execution. So what are the things in your life that maybe you've pursued that, that are things you're hoping that'll bring you temporary short thing happiness and miss joy? Second, I hope we walk away from this realizing that our joy is secure and a gift from God through salvation provided by Christ and Christ alone, but that also affects how we live life. Our salvation should mean, as Paul writes to the Romans, that we should be pursuing being conformed to the image of Christ. Is that what you're pursuing? Do your relationships with other people reflect the goodness of Christ? I'm not saying we overlook things. But in this day of the tensions we face, what an opportunity to model Christ to our world. 
So not only are we saved and brought back in right relationship with God, might that right relationship also now be reflected in our relationship with others. And why do we do that? Not because we can add to our salvation. We do that because we are saved. And we care more about the testimony of Christ to our world than our rights, our happiness, and the things that we think are more important. That's what I hope we take away. Those are hard things to live out, amen? Not easy, but don't miss the gift of joy. Don't miss the gift of joy. God offers it and gives it to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your infallible word, your inerrant word, which we have read and studied. These are your words spoken through the Apostle Paul. And so you had things you wanted to communicate to us about joy and about rejoicing. You want to teach us to enjoy the gift of joy. This is not a fleeting or something that we can't obtain because it's a gift. You want to teach us that we should thrive and rejoice and be glad in life because of our salvation. And one of the ways we do that is how we relate to others, how we live life inside and outside the church, What are the passions and the priorities that are most important to us? Those things that must be gospel-centered. So do a work in our heart as a result of studying this so we be more conformed to the image of Christ. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.